it's been a huge shift, like I said, just personally going from, you know, living in Europe and just my full-time job was, was racing a bike to now, you know, still riding a bike. And, you know, I was planning on doing a lot of the gravel events here in the States, but also, you know, kind of balancing that with, you know, for the first time in my life with an actual, an actual job, um, which has been, it's been a steep learning curve. There's nothing, you know, I can't hide that. It's, you know, all of a sudden you have a you know, responsibilities and, and, you know, meetings and Zoom calls and all that kind of stuff. It's like, oh, wow, this is way different than just riding your bike for five, six hours a day. From KOM Cycling and Michigan Midpack Media, welcome to the Dirty Chain Podcast, the podcast that covers the cycling scene from the viewpoint of the Michigan Midpack. I'm your host, Trevor. And this is Sheldon. And on this episode, we interview former World Tour Pro and now Gravel Pro, Ian Boswell. Sheldon, racing is back. Michigan is rolling again. Not only Michigan... We see worldwide, we have racing back. The World Tour started with Strada Bianchi and Milan San Remo, both won by Wout Van Aert. But we're not really here to talk about the World Tour. Well, us Americans can't even go over to watch it right now. <laughs> so, Correct. <laughs> you have to watch it on TV. We have to watch it on TV or YouTube or something. We're just other. not allowed out of the country. <laughs> but we are here to talk about some of our local racing and Michigan racing, and I'm sure there's some other racing going on within the country. But before we talk about that, Sheldon, we're in the basement. This is, I, I don't, I can't remember the last time we actually recorded face-to-face in the basement studio. I bet it was probably Rob Mendering. It was our Rob Mendering episode, Mendering episode. Mendering. Um, sorry, sorry, Rob. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's been it's been a whole whirlwind. Of course, everyone has been dealing with so many things, but uh, we're back. We're kind of back at it. And I wanted to kind of revisit a segment that we usually would talk about um, in every episode that we kind of got away from. I want to talk about what we're drinking here to begin the episode there's currently a hodgepodge there is a hodgepodge but <laughs> you opened up something and i don't think maybe you shouldn't say it by name or maybe yeah, you I'm, can. I'm not gonna give a shot well, i don't know maybe i should give a warning maybe a warning <laughs> it is a local michigan cider that you opened up and what was your uh first reaction to the to the cider so a little backstory uh me and a couple of my friends used to make uh our own hooch it was, uh, and we still kind of occasionally what? make it, but we made like, a, like bathtub gin or it was trash can cider. Oh God! <laughs> but we made it like we were making like three hundred bottles a year. Like we weren't screwing around. Okay. But um, yeah. So I don't know. For the last six or seven years, we've been doing this, and uh, this tastes like one of our first batches. <laughs> so it's. Uh, so I'm it's... not. I'm not going to give a, a, a full call out of like the cidery's name, but at least the the. The individual one is called the Co-op 39 Dry Cider Rosé. It's not good. It's bad. <laughs> it tastes like vinegar. So you opened it up and, and then you moved on to something else. Yeah, Where did you drink? I, I, took, I took a couple sips. But you moved quickly moved on to... Oh, yeah. To a, to a tried and true. This was no longer an experiment with a new one. And uh, went back to the farm Haas 
<laughs> from our early episodes. Farm Haas uh, Cider from here in Michigan. Uh, they're uh, truck or truck and dry. It's a dry British style cider. It is so good. Yeah. Sticking with those ciders. I love ciders. Yeah. Ciders I- and sours. Those are kind of my go-tos until it gets cold. And then I'm just straight into the stouts and porters. Sure. I'm still kind of on this Marquette high after Crusher. Did you smuggle these back across the bridge? Because <laughs> <laughs> I, I know you went to Black Rocks. Um, I think so. I am drinking a 51K. I probably did get that from Marquette, but I picked up this Prescale, um, also Black Rocks, that um, I'm going to get into right now. What kind of um, ale is it? Um, they call it a summer ale and whatever that means. Well, summer's only like two weeks in the UP, so so what's that mean? <laughs> Is it really a stout? They only (laughs) brew it for for a week. (laughs) So getting back to cycling, uh, the reason that we're here, Sheldon... No, I I came for the beer. (laughs) The cider. The cider. Um, As we said at the beginning of the episode, racing has resumed uh, somewhat. Uh, you you so, still see some a of little the, modified a little yep you still see some of the the larger races that of course probably had to cancel or be postponed but you do see some of the smaller grassroots races that um, uh, um, have found ways to modify themselves to at least to push imp- a- improve their safety to be able to. Go Correct. Ahead. So well, kind of going back to the big ones, I don't think we we've talked about it yet. Margie Gessick. Oh, yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm sure that, like, by the time anyone's listening to this, everyone knows Margie Gessick has been canceled. I think we, we brought this up um, on the Crusher episode, and we asked Todd directly about uh, any kind of, news on Margie. He gave and, a little vague. And he was a little coy about it, but, uh, yeah, it's official now that Margie is not happening for 2020, but Margie Gessick will hopefully uh, resume 2021 mm-hmm. yeah that is big news i forgot about that sheldon todd had a great write-up for that though like I, the, the, his explanation of you know if we can't give you what you expect expect then they don't want if it's not the margin experience yeah. they don't even want to they don't want it all watered down they didn't like uh you know some people had asked about doing like a margie ex and he goes well, no that's what crusher ex is yeah margie is margie either you get it or you don't correct yep so so yeah, that's a that's another one that that won't be happening this year. I'm going to interrupt real quick because after we recorded this podcast, we have heard that Barry Roubaix is also canceled. Um, they put up a great post on Facebook and Instagram, and we have uh, linked to that on our Facebook page. So if you're interested in knowing more about that, you can go there. But uh, unfortunately, like so many others, Bear Roubaix, we will not see it until hopefully 2021. Okay, back to the podcast. But back to the ones that are happening this year. Or did you want to? I did want to talk about, well, it is happening this year. The one you went to last year, Unpaved came out with a very interesting oh, yes. methodology. So they really held off on their uh, registration till the last minute. I mean, so so to uh, review, Unpaved is in October. It's in middle Pennsylvania. Very hilly, very climbing. It's like 114, 115 miles, 120 miles maybe. Yeah, um, it advertised 120, yeah. and I think yours came out to like 118 or something, something like, like that. Yeah. And um, yeah, they held off on the registration for a very long time. And I, I think they weren't really sure if the race was going to occur or not. Well, how how long they held off on it, I think a lot of people had kind of been like, yep. yeah, not happening. 
and then they did. They came out and said there will be a registration. It will be a two hundred people. Two hundred people. That's it. But the thing was, it would be a individual time trial. That's insane. <laughs> so one hundred twenty miles, ten thousand plus feet of climbing, individual time tri- time trial. Um, I think I liked the version last year better. <laughs> I guess it's better than nothing. Yeah. No, I, I I mean it's I think it's cool to, you know, have this change and this modification and they were able to do it because they hadn't previously opened their registration, so they didn't have this flood of people. They were able to change it, say, Hey, two hundred people, this is it. Mm-hmm. Um so I think it I think it worked on their favor, being patient. I think it's gonna be a savage event. Yeah, I I think you're gonna have to uh definitely be ready to do that on your own. Um because that that will be difficult. Yeah, that'll take a lot of mental toughness. I think that was. I I, th- I I do like what they're doing. I think that's an interesting way to do it. Definitely, I feel like there might be people that did it in previous years or the last two years. It's this is his third year, and uh. I think there might be some people that <laughs> might get out there and realize 120 miles of 10,000 feet of Appalachia by yourself is not going to be. You know, it'd be interesting. Uh, Dave Pryor puts on that uh, race, and it'd be interesting to get his his thoughts on uh, how exactly he came up with the idea of well, the individual time trial. We've seen that in, in different iterations of of races changing, but um, um, I, I'm wondering what how he thinks it's it's all going to go down. You know, I think what would be really interesting is after this goes down, kind of, you know. I don't think we should talk to somebody from like the top of the group because if you're winning an event like that, 120 miles by yourself, no problem. I think we should poach like middle of the field, just find someone's <laughs> name, track them down on Facebook, and be like, "We want to talk to you." Yeah, I think that'd be a really cool conversation. That, w- that would be an interesting just conversation. Like, hey, how'd that 120 solo <laughs> go? <laughs> it might be like uh, when someone finishes crusher or margie and swears at todd takes they, a swing at him. they may they may be swearing at dave Pryor. who knows <laughs> but yeah that would be totally interesting Sheldon, can we talk about the races that have happened yeah we got a couple of them we have uh we have three of them here in michigan well in the last uh last few weeks we've seen a, a couple of them go on um starting with uh the big m challenge which is a mountain bike race part of the cps series mm-hmm and that was uh, in late July, July 25th. Oh, uh, technically, that was, I think that was their second event because they did have the eight hours of Ithaca. Prior, so and we've had four of them. Okay. Yeah, four, four events. So correction there. Um, and then uh, the very next day, we had the Manton Divide. Gravel race. Gravel race. And we had some familiar faces attend that. I saw um, Jordan Wakely won the 50-miler. Mm-hmm. Um, Emily Molesky, who's been on the podcast, it looks like she did really well in the 34-miler. She may have won that. I couldn't tell in the results. It was kind of odd. But friend of ours, Joe Cantwell, who started the crusher with us and unfortunately had to pull out. The very next week, he went and did the Manton Divide, the 34-miler, and won it. And I just wanted to give him a shout-out for just a total redemption race. That's a great rebound, right? Yes, for (laughs) sure. So congrats, Joe, on uh, on one hell of a race. Then this past weekend... Now you get to give a little personal experience. I actually raced the water. You you just race. You podiumed. Well, I, if there was a social distance podium, but they didn't have a podium technically, and uh, I yes, I, I think I got third. 
um, it's it was kind of interesting. But anyways, um, so yeah, this this past weekend uh, we're uh, currently recording mid August, so August eighth, there was the inaugural year of the water move that our friend Nick Stanko put on. Uh, Nick was on episode episode sixteen. Uh, we had Nick Stanko on. He uh, showed up with some bloom mead which, oh yeah uh, was amazing uh this year was the inaugural year of the water moo uh it was originally supposed to be on august 8 8 and 88 miles uh it was modified it this was year. modified um it was moved the start was moved from chelsea to dexter yeah because and they couldn't use the the city park there was all sorts of little things that changed but that that move brought it up from 88 miles to 111 miles a pretty substantial i think he basically went back to the cuz the water move started off originally as one of his get together centuries and just watch people fall apart mm-hmm. on gravel roads um, so I think he kind of went back a little bit to the original course, um, that they had ran last year. Sure. But, I think, but now made it more of a race where last year was just show up and yeah. rip each other's legs off until everyone cried. Well, Sheldon, I have some intimate experience with this because I was actually there and I actually raced. And you got in the water. And there was a water crossing. Oh, it made me so happy. <laughs> Yeah, but you weren't there to experience I know. it. <laughs> I think I was working. Yeah, you were working. Um, but yeah, the water moo happened uh, August 8th this past weekend. And it was, Sheldon, I have to say, it felt like a race. And it there were uh, some obvious differences. Uh, there were a lot of different waves that went out. Some people just chose to go alone. And it was just uh, Nick went by your Strava time of the complete route. So, um, so you could just go by yourself, but, uh, but yeah, and then some of the waves, there were quite a few people and, and it felt like we were really racing, like racing was back and Rob Mendering was there taking pictures and there was a, it's not a race without Rob. It's not a race without (laughs) Rob. And it was, man, I have to tell you, it was great. It felt fantastic, but the, the route, it was, it was interesting because I didn't really look too much at the route itself. I knew that there were some parts here and there, but we would go through a section and I would all of a sudden remember the interview that we had with Nick Stanko and I'm like, oh, I remember this part that he was talking about. <laughs> or or like we get to the we got to the two track and I thought, oh, I think this is where the water crossing is coming. <laughs> or we turned on to Cassidy Road and I thought, oh, Cassidy Road is does not have a good reputation for being a, a very uh, smooth road, and it was not smooth. Um, so that was pretty interesting. But uh, put your future shock to work. Oh, the, that whole bike was rattling. I, I felt my bra- <laughs> like my brain was rattling in my head. It was so dry out there that the a lot of the gravel roads had so like the the washboard effect was elevated, yeah. and it was just rattling all of us all over the place it was pretty smooth i mean it wasn't like really uh uh, loose gravel yeah it's pretty good hard pack there was there was some sandy stuff here and there but uh but yeah i mean i i felt like we had a group we were working together people broke away um daniel yankis and this uh young kid 16 year old uh, kellen caldwell who was super strong both of them broke away i think they they put on like 15 minutes on us. I mean, it was it was nuts. They came in first and second, and then a lot of us stuck together um, for the rest of it. And I was 
I was uh, uh, lucky enough to kind of stick around and wait till the end, and there was only a few of us. Oh, uh, there were a few familiar faces in the group. Uh, Nathan Laraza, who who did the Crusher. Mm-hmm. Um, so there, there were just a lot of really strong riders, and in the end, it was only like maybe four or five of us together. Yeah, well, you, you, uh, it sounded like it was a little bit of a rotation of attrition. A little bit. There were some punchy hills, man. I forgot how, how punchy and... and like one after another, those hills come in that area. Well, you know, if Nick's making a course, it's going to happen. Like, he likes to hunt down elevation. Right. Like, it could be a very smooth area. Nick's going to find some climbs. Yeah, for sure. It was it was fantastic, though. Nick did a great job. Um, he even got a Watermoose Street sign. He gave out Watermoose Street signs to every everyone who uh, who completed it. It's great. Metal, it's it's quality. Yeah, it's, quality. Not, it's not like when I saw it sitting here, Connor, I went to pick it up, like expecting it to be like some super cheap plastic. Nope. Straight up metal. I don't know. I was on a high that whole day because I felt like... No, you were hungover because we were drinking the day before. <laughs> I was not hungover. <laughs> I was not You were riding the, riding the wave of Zoobies. <laughs> No, I after that race, it it felt so good to be mixing it up with people again, racing again, and uh, and just working hard, and and like I said, like Nick did a great job of trying to figure out how to do this safely so we could actually be there and compete, and uh, I'm so thankful that he put the time in to do that. The course was great. Um, having Rob there felt like a real race. Um, it, it started and stopped at Jolly Pumpkin so we could get a beer afterwards. It just had all the elements that you needed um, to be a race. You saw familiar faces. So it was it was fantastic. And like like anything that we do, um, it, you probably have a, a few um, – you, you are taking a risk to be around people. Mm-hmm. But, um, but I felt like the risks were very low and there were very few – you're not in a huge wave of people. There are very few – people that started in these waves so um so yeah i felt like it was safe and it was um it was just a ton of fun to 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 do this again um yeah and i came in third which was cool yeah no big deal (laughs) well you uh, 112 miles 20 mile an hour average i think you guys had what five thousand feet of climbing ish yeah i think i mean Garments are weird, and they they're all over yeah, the place. But I think know, one person's might I say twenty hundred. I think and... it's around five thousand feet of climbing. So okay, um, it was good. It was fast for sure. There was, I I should ask Nick. I was wondering this: what the percentage of gravel to paved is? It might be eighty twenty. Um, yeah. There's a bit of bit of pavement. Yeah, but I mean um, Southeast Michigan, it's unavoidable. You, you have to get you know you need to ride the pavement to get to the gravel. But yeah. but the gravel that was there was was pretty fantastic. So I loved it. I, I, I'll do it again for sure. Um, Great inaugural year. Fantastic inaugural year. I mean, for, and, and especially considering the year, considering the year. Um, I loved it. So thank you, Nick. And um, it was great to see so many familiar faces there and uh, to race with them. So fantastic. Yeah. And uh, I think we as of now, we have a few races coming up, but maybe we shouldn't. Everything's got a question mark. Yeah. So. Yeah. So maybe we shouldn't really get into I that. I think the only one that I, I have confidence in going on, I think, would be Cow Pie. I, I'm pretty it, strong confidence Cow Pie will happen. Yeah, so Joe Cantwell, who we mentioned earlier, who uh, um, he puts on the Cow Pie Classic. Yep. It was also on the podcast. And, uh, yeah, they have some, some uh, COVID precautions in place 
Sheldon, I it's on a Saturday. I bet you are you're working at the bike shop, aren't you? Yeah, but I can always get Saturdays off. Yeah, it's August 29th. I am planning on at this point to be there. So, so then I have the question of which bike to take. So, of all your bikes, Sheldon, you do have a a working bike, right? Or a couple working yeah, bikes? Yeah. So I've got my Candale cyclocross bike. That one's that one's fine. I just have to put new sealant in the tires just because I haven't ridden it all summer. I've got my Roubaix. All right, Roubaix still. I that thing doesn't die. Like I think that thing. It's, it's a got tank. Like, it's got like sixteen thousand miles, and I just neglect it, and it doesn't squeak. Jockey wheels are great. Like I don't know what it is with that bike. Like there's something special about it. Specialized. <laughs> Specialized. Um, that was like a dad joke. Oh. <laughs> Shut up! You've got the mustache right now. <laughs> I do. I'm rocking the Sheldon mustache. It looks. It looks epic. I love it. I love it. Keep it growing. So uh, Rachel uh, hates it. She says I look like a cop. Yeah, well, you kind of do. <laughs> I need to give you some of my aviators from Iceman, yeah. and just you could just pull nice. it off perfectly. See, I just look creepy. Like I don't look. I don't look like a cop. You look like you're like, you know, like go bust some high schoolers that are <laughs> drinking in their parents' backyard. <laughs> Let's go bust up a kegger. <laughs> like, and how could we forget August twenty second? Fast Fitty in Charlotte, Michigan. Uh, Spin is helping out. Uh, yep. Spin Bicycle Shop. Uh, Who we race for? I don't know, Sheldon. I mean, we kind of we kind of talked about all things. We're all over the a little place. bit of bike racing, a little bit of drinks and beers, uh, mustaches. Shall we get to our main segment of the of the podcast? <laughs> Poor Ian has let up with all of this. <laughs> He's probably gonna listen to this episode and be like, "These assholes." <laughs> Ian Boswell. I started following Ian um, while he was racing, I think, for Katusha during the Tour de France. And he uh, raced for Team Sky, which is like the biggest, was the biggest. Uh, the name in Grand Tours. Yeah. And um, an American rider from Oregon. And now he is in Vermont. And so he, he himself has a podcast right now, currently, called Breakfast with Boz. And uh, it's fantastic. It's great. He talks to all sorts of different people in the cycling industry, but he also talks about what he's having for breakfast and what it's like living um, on the on the on the farm that they live in in Vermont. And he's just a real down to earth guy. Getting rid of groundhogs. Getting rid of groundhogs. <laughs> so I thought, man, it'd be great to to talk to him, not only about um, not not so much about the world tour, but like what he's doing with cycling and bikes and just the whole cycling culture now and how he's a part of it and how he's supporting it and how he sees adapting with 2020 sure yeah absolutely so um why don't we just get right in now to our conversation with ian boswell hello hey how's it going going well how are you doing well yeah sorry i'm a little bit late we had a ground uh groundhog woodchuck that need to be dealt with <laughs> i mean you are literally three minutes late so that's not really late yeah. in my opinion well um, uh yeah i guess i i host a podcast of myself and i always appreciate it when people are at least on time so i i apologize the oh, i appreciate that the groundhog uh situation sounds like what i would expect from you just following you a little bit. 
Yeah, we. Uh, my wife has been eagerly trying to catch this groundhog all spring because it's been digging into our garden. And uh, yeah, finally we caught it. And it's, I'll tell you, it's nice and plump from all the, um, <laughs> from all the garden vegetables. What is it, what is it going after specifically? Do you, I mean, just everything? Yeah. But, I mean, especially when we first started planting stuff in the spring, it was like digging and, you know, eating all the seeds and whatnot that we'd planted, eating a lot of like the lettuce and kale and all the, all the leafy greens. Um, and, uh, I mean, we're in Michigan, so we have a lot of groundhogs as well, but you guys are in Vermont, correct? Yep. Yep. Up in like the Northeast corner of Vermont. Okay. Um, I, I guess like maybe with the, with the groundhog conversation, I do want to, maybe we'll start with, uh, I want to talk a little bit about breakfast. (laughs) Yes. Um, and, uh, you have your own podcast. And it's called Breakfast with Boz. Your last name is Boswell. There, there's the Boz there. Yes. And, but, um, but I, I, I know that the Breakfast with Boz started. Uh, you, you were having like conversations with people while you're on the tour de France. Um, but now in your podcast, you 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 have like some specific like here's what I'm having for breakfast. Here's a recipe, which is a very cool element to your to your new podcast. Um, Maybe to start this off, what is your favorite breakfast or your go-to breakfast or your favorite breakfast? Maybe those are two different things. Favorite breakfast. Um, Oh, that's hard to say. It really depends. I mean, it it changes so, I mean, it changes daily. Sometimes I wake up and I want something, something sweet. And there's other days when I wake up and I just want like a savory, you know, omelet on a piece of toast. Um, But yeah, like you said, the, the initial idea of kind of keeping that name breakfast with boz came from a podcast i was doing in the 2018 tour and yeah i started the podcast or kind of relaunched the podcast this year um as part of my my role with wahoo and yeah at first it was we were supposed to do like i think just like 12 15 episodes throughout the course of the year um, kind of like documenting all the races and you know different events and then all of a sudden COVID happened and yeah. the podcast turned into a weekly um a weekly series. And mm-hmm. then all of a sudden I realized like, Oh wow, that's like a lot of breakfast to try and share recipes <laughs> for. Um, so yeah, I've, uh, been, it also keeps me creative, you know, it keeps my wife and I, we, we do a lot of cooking. So it definitely keeps us, you know, thinking up new recipes and there's, you know, kind of obviously, you know, one breakfast a week is a lot different than if, if I was hosting like a cooking show and have to do a breakfast a day. Um, but yeah, it's a um, favorite breakfast. I mean, the other day I just had like a bowl of bowl of oatmeal with some peanut butter, maple syrup. And that's, I mean, it's so simple. Like even like, I guess um, some listeners may know this, but so there's, you know, so there's like oat groats, which is like the whole oat grain, which is like, so steel cut oats are oat groats, like cut up. But like if you cook oat groats overnight in like a rice cooker or a crock pot, mm-hmm. it like changes what you think oatmeal is. Like it's so much creamier and thicker and it's like nutty. Um, so if you can find oat groats at a, you know, maybe like a whole food store or, you know, like a place that sells bulk kind of grains, um, yeah, cook that overnight with some, just even some water, some salt and cinnamon, and then pile on your favorite, you know, toppings to oatmeal. And it's, it changes oatmeal, especially when you get down to, you know, a lot of people, their thought of oatmeal is like Quaker instant oatmeal and you eat that and you're like, this is, this is junk compared to, <laughs> oat groats. you know, that's been like, you know, 
cut and then flattened and then pressed and then heated and then right. you know so it cooks in a minute you know oak groats take you know a good few hours to cook um so you start all your podcasts with a breakfast recipe and it's only fitting that you talked about how to prepare oat groats on on this one so i appreciate that that's that's very cool um before we get uh, much further, I do want to just I want to thank you for uh, taking your time here. And so we are a, uh, a Michigan based podcast and there's a lot of great cycling happening happening in Michigan. There's a lot of great gravel cycling happening in Michigan. And so we just started kind of talking to people about that. And then, yeah, and and, and especially with covid, then we started to talk to pros and people that maybe had a really busy season that all of a sudden it wasn't as busy as they were planning on and um so i i i hate to to bring this up so early because this is kind of the conversation that everyone is having right now but how are you dealing with the kind of the covid life and you kind of brought that up a little bit it's kind of threw a a wrench into your whole uh wahoo podcast um or or maybe it gave you an opportunity um yeah yeah well i guess i mean first i've uh i don't think i've ever actually been to michigan but my friend larry warbass who i'm sure you know of is a is a michigan boy and i actually do have a um i do have a bear claw thunderhawk which you do michigan yes i do i i didn't Um, know that you gotta you gotta put more instagram photos of that (laughs) thunderhawk actually i would i I would love a thunderhawk by the way yeah they are they are a sweet bike um yeah i actually got it on my um it arrived well i had got the frame that i got it built up and delivered on my wedding day last year so i that was my first ride on it was uh my wedding day so 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 they are originally from um uh traverse city where uh larry is from um or at least where Larry grew up. And then I think they just moved to uh, Bear Claw, moved to Marquette, which is in the Upper Peninsula. Okay. Um, but, oh, man, they make some sweet bikes for sure. They do. Yeah. Well, I think actually, it, I mean, we're kind of on a sidetrack from your initial question, but I think um, That's okay. I was posting some pictures, was it last year, about the bike? And I think even like Lars Boom um, saw it. And then he, I think they sent him a bike for <laughs> some of the, the beach racing. Cause you know, you can put a huge, yeah. a huge tire on and does Oh that, I, yeah. I saw that. And then he racing in, yeah. in the Netherlands. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, COVID question. Um, it has been, I mean, I guess I'm going through such a big transition in, in 2020 myself, you know, leaving kind of my former life and like life in Europe as a, you know, as a professional road racer and yeah, retired, I guess, officially. And um, at the end of January, and started a job and a position with with Wahoo, um, and that job and kind of my role was you know I'm taking on well because of COVID I'm taking on a lot more responsibilities because we're not attending any events, mm-hmm. um, which is kind of part of what I was going to be doing. But um, it's been a huge shift, like I said, just personally going from you know living in Europe and just my full time job was was racing a bike to now you know still riding a bike and you know I was planning on doing. A lot of the gravel events here in the states but also you know kind of balancing that with you know for the first time in my life with an actual an actual job um which has been probably a bigger shift for me personally than kind of experiencing you know kind of lockdown era mm-hmm. um but it's actually been really nice because i've actually for the first time ever um been in one place for a long time 
but first time since, you know, I was, you know, a kid in, in high school, I've been, you know, stuck or thankfully stuck in, in Vermont and at our house. So I'm actually getting to appreciate, you know, our lifestyle here and kind of what we do have and still being able to ride, but, you know, kind of develop my skills as, as an employee, um, which has been, it's been a steep learning curve. There's nothing, you know, I can't hide that. It's, you know, all of a sudden you have a, you know, responsibilities and, and, you know, meetings and zoom calls and all that kind of stuff. It's like, Oh wow, this is way different than just riding your bike for five, six hours a day. But um, yeah, I mean, I was, I was supposed to go to mid South and it was actually just a couple of days before the event that um, yeah, we decided not to go myself and mm-hmm. my colleagues at Wahoo. And yeah, that was um, kind of the only real event that maybe had, you know, I had the possibility to race in, in 2020 and, Obviously, it looks like the rest of the season has been um, pushed back to potentially next year, and who knows, maybe even beyond that. Yeah, uh, you mentioned um, how, uh, despite, I mean, aside from COVID, this has been kind of a transition um, lately for you. And um, I do want to talk about kind of what you're doing now, but can we set a little bit of context for uh, our listeners and just? just for this conversation about um, just where you, where you came from. And uh, um, will you tell us a little bit about, you know, coming up through um, the American scene and then the world tour? I mean, you don't have to be super specific about it, but I just, I'd just like to know a little bit more about, about you as a, as a road cyclist and a professional cyclist. Yeah. Yeah. So I grew up in, uh, in Bend, Oregon. Both of my parents were avid, Um, endurance athletes. My dad did triathlon professionally and my mom, she ran marathons and did some mountain bike racing. And I guess growing up in a place like Bend, um, which sounds like Michigan is somewhat similar in the sense that like being involved in kind of endurance sports isn't really, it's more common, I guess, than maybe some places in the U.S. I did play, you know, kind of the mainstream American sports, basketball, football, all that. Um, But just based off the community and kind of my parents' experience with endurance sports, I kind of drifted towards um, cycling. I guess I did play basketball through high school, but then, you know, every kind of springtime, you know, was eager to get on my bike and start racing and just kind of gradually rose up through the ranks in Oregon. And thankfully at the time there was a pretty competitive junior kind of crop of, of riders. So mm-hmm. maybe a guy you may know, Jacob Raffi was grew up in Oregon and we're the same age. So we grew up, you know, battling each other. And I think just having that competitive and friendly rivalry with, with, you know, another junior every weekend, um, definitely kind of, you know, pushed me to another level. And eventually I raced on, on hot tubes for my last year as a, as a junior and started racing with the national team over in Europe. Um, I actually started off mountain bike racing, but quickly kind of focused more on, on road cycling, especially kind of in the, in the Armstrong era, there was definitely a lot of buzz around, you know, road sure. cycling and the Tour sure. de France and all that. And um, yeah, and just kind of continually had the right results at the at the right time and moved up through the ranks um i raced on bissell my first year bissell pro cycling another michigan company right? yeah this, yeah i was just gonna say the same <laughs> yeah. yeah um yes yeah, so i was with with bissell pro cycling in what 2010 and again had some good results and then raced with with Livestrong for for two years and um yeah, it just kind of, like I said, continually had kind of the right results at the right time and eventually moved up to, to Team Sky when I was, I guess, 21. Um, raced there for five years and then left Sky at end of 2017 to go to Katusha Alpesin because I wanted to to ride the Tour de France and it just became more and more difficult um, to kind of crack that 
you know, hierarchy at Team Sky. So I went to Katusha, rode in the tour in 2018 with them. And then in the spring of 2019, I had a, um, yeah, a hard crash and um, a pretty severe concussion, which was kind of like the string of multiple concussions over the course of my career. And just with that and some other health issues related to that, that um, kind of put into question, like, did I want to keep, did I want to keep doing this? And that was a long process from when I, you know, crashed until I decided that I wasn't going to kind of pursue a road career. So I decided to yeah stop racing road bikes and um, yeah, you know, this gravel, I still love, I guess what I learned about myself during that kind of time when I wasn't able to race was that I really loved riding my bike and I wanted to continue riding my bicycle, but in a way challenge myself riding in a different way. You know, for so long I've been focused on, you know, the, just about the performance side of it. And there's so much more to, to bike riding than just, you know, this high end professional road cycle. And I'm very much in many ways, like feel like a novice again, riding my bike, you know, learning how to do basic bike mechanics. And, you know, it's like first time I've like set up tubula, tubeless tires this year. I'm like, Oh, this is actually not that difficult. <laughs> um, so I've enjoyed <laughs> the process of, you know, learning, learning kind of the bike mechanics and also learning about, you know, just riding different roads and kind of slowing down and enjoying, you know, riding my bike again um, with the, with, I guess the, personal, you know, aspiration to still be somewhat competitive in these gravel races. But like I said, there's uh, no races in 2020. So I might have to wait a little bit longer. Yeah, I want to kind of go back. I mean, you, you did a great job kind of uh, talking about your career and where you are now. But uh, I don't want to gloss over the fact that um, you have done every single Grand Tour, correct? All three Grand Tours? Yep, I did. Yeah, one tour, one Giro, and I think three. Three Vueltas. Three Vueltas. Yeah. Yeah, that's. I mean, and that that is pretty fantastic. Uh, I I think. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. No, it's um, you know, it really is like a dream come true. And I guess when you're in it, it just. I mean, everyone around you is kind of doing the same the same thing. You know, like you're hanging out with other pro cyclists sure. who are also racing Grand Tours, so it seems normal. Um, you know, now kind of be like to be one step removed. And still very much a fan. I look back, I'm like, oh, wow, like I was in those races. Like that, that was pretty cool. You know, it's, I guess, hindsight, you know, you can appreciate things a little bit more. So kind of side question, I, I was wondering how much of a fan of cycling you are. And, you know, just this weekend, we had the Strada Bianchi, um, the kind of the return of cycling for 2020, pro cycling. Um, did you watch it? Are you interested in that? I mean, I'm sure there's people that are racing that you know. I mean, you talk about Larry, Larry Warboss. I know he rode in it. Um, and probably a lot of other people you know rode it. Did you watch it? Are you interested in that kind of thing? Yeah, no, I'm still a huge fan of, of cycling. Good. I still every morning, like when I wake up, I mean, I, I guess, you know, part of the reason for walking away was like, it was very much on my terms. And I still have a very good and healthy and like positive relationship with, with cycling, which I think, you know, s some athletes retire from whatever sport they're in and you're kind of burnt out on it. Um, but I love cycling. You know, I still like every morning when I wake up with a cup of coffee and I'm checking all the different cycling websites and just seeing what's happening. Um, I did not actually watch Strada Bianchi. Um, I, I wanted to, but just like with the timing here on the East coast in the U S it's kind of unfortunate that it's like right in the middle of the day when I'm like, mm -hmm. Ooh, I actually want to ride my bike myself. So, you know, I did catch up on some highlights and, you know, look at results and I was doing this. I was doing the same <laughs> yeah. thing. I actually yeah. finished a ride and I got in right at the, like, there were like three K's to go or something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, that's actually one of the things I've found out about, 
you know, growing up on the East or living on the East coast now is like, it's very different than growing up on the West coast is like perfect. Cause you, you, know, you wake up in the morning and races finish at like 9am, but on the East coast, it's like, everything is right in the middle of the day, you know, it finishes at, you know, 11, 11 AM. It's like, well, that's kind of when I'm riding my bike usually. So right. it, was, it was the same last year during the, during the tour, you know, I was home in Vermont. Um, but wasn't watching that many stages just because I was out, you know, trying to ride myself. But yeah, no, still, still a huge fan. And I, like you said, I still speak to a lot of my friends um, in the Peloton, you know, both just as friends, but also some people for the podcast. And, you know, it's still a sport that I, I really love and, you know, have so much admiration for all the, all the people out there, you know, friends that are still doing it. Cause it's, you know, it's an awesome life. And yeah, just today I got some, um, I got a message from a, a Canadian rider, Antoine Duchesne, who rides for Groupama FDJ. Um, and he messaged me, he's like, oh man, like I'm so jealous of your life. Like I wanna, you know, I wanna quit ri- racing and do that. I'm like, like, it's gonna be there when you stop. Like don't, like it, yeah. being a professional cyclist is pretty, is a pretty awesome lifestyle. Enjoy it as long as you can, because it's, you know, chickens and gardens and groundhogs, they'll, they'll be there when you're done. <laughs> um. Yeah, at the beginning of this whole COVID thing, I saw that Larry Warboss um, went back, came back to Michigan for he was here for a few months, I think. But uh, so so I reached out and we had a conversation. But he was saying that he even saw like I think he was with you not not too long or not too earlier before that. You were in um, I don't know in Girona or yeah no we were in Nice yeah so in I Nice um, okay. Yeah, I went over to Nice, I think it was end of February. Um, yeah, that's where I was based for, I guess, eight years I was living in Nice. So Larry and I, you know, got to know each other really. I mean, we raced together when we were younger as juniors and on the national team, but we lived, you know, like a mile from each other in Nice for, for seven years. Um, he was in Italy before that, then moved to Nice. Um, you know, so we're, we've been become really good friends, you know, both on and off the bike. So I went over in end of February and he was away racing, actually. Um, but I stayed in his apartment and he was at the the UAE tour and that's kind of when the first that's, cases yeah. of, yeah. yeah, of, um, kind of COVID, you know, kind of poked its, poked its head up and, you know, I'd seen news about it, but it didn't really seem, I don't want to say it didn't seem relevant, but it just wasn't like mainstream yet. Um, yeah. And Larry came back from, from UAE tour and I was still at his house and this was still like, you know, he'd been tested and he came back negative, but you know, he'd flown back from, from this race where people were positive, um, you know, there's so much unknown. And I came back to the U.S. maybe three or four days after Larry got back to Nice. Um, so we spent time together, but it was just like, like I said, you know, in hindsight, probably a stupid thing to do, but we just didn't, we didn't really know much about it. And he had had a negative test. And so sure. I was like, oh, we're, we're fine. Um, but I definitely kind of saw, you know, while we were in Europe, Larry was supposed to leave to another race and, you know, we were sitting in his apartment and he was just getting like text messages from his teammates and directors, like, you know, should we leave for the race? Should I get on this flight? Like I'm going to the airport. And it was like this whole chaos of were these events going to happen or were they not going to happen? And ultimately they, they didn't happen. Um, but I came back to the U S and it seemed like things here were still kind of really unknown. Like people were still heading to like mid South amidst this, right. you know, kind of right. situation that hadn't really, we hadn't you know fully become aware of yet, but, you know, I'd like I said, just come back from Europe where races were being canceled and Italy was on, you know, full lockdown and people were trying to escape, you know, this, you know, where they live before they weren't allowed to leave their homes. Um, so I guess maybe I was an early adopter to realizing kind of the direction that this was all going. Yeah. It, did you find it a little, I don't know if easier is the correct word, but, um, 
I mean, just the season before you were rehabbing from an injury, um, almost the entire season or half the season. Yeah. I, and yeah, um, I crashed in, I crashed in March and then didn't race, didn't race again for the rest of the year. Yeah. So uh, we talked with, um, um, ultra runner, Hillary Allen, and she went through this, this whole, like she broke her back and she had this huge injury and how like the, the connection between going through an injury and then kind of going through this whole societal injury of COVID. And I don't know if that like helped you set up if it made COVID this, this whole thing worse, or if it made it a little easier to deal with because you've already been, um, not, not isolating yourself, but just rehabbing yourself. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And I guess for myself, you know, it was, I guess I'm appreciate the fact that I'm not, you know, there's so much unknown with so many pro riders this year and, you know, teams are, you know, there's rumors that teams, you know, maybe going to fold and like, you know, if you're on yeah. a contract year, if races don't happen, are you going to get a new contract? And there's a lot of stress just around that side of, of racing at the moment. Um, so I'm glad that I didn't have to deal with, with all of that. And like I said, you know, this is the first time I've been able to actually spend time at, at our house here. We've lived here since 2017 and I haven't really, you know, other than, you know, winters and maybe an odd week in the summer, haven't spent all that much time at our house in Vermont. So it's actually been, it's been nice to, you know, actually be home and like realize that, Oh wow. Like most people don't actually live out of a suitcase for the majority <laughs> of their life. So you can actually like make connections with, you know, things and, you know, little events in town. And obviously a lot of those have been canceled, but just, you know, actually being a part of the community has been, um, you know, something I've kind of longed for and finally able to actually be a part of. What, um, what brought you guys to Vermont in the first place? Yeah. So my wife, um, she grew up in Vermont after college, she moved out to Bend and I was, I was out in Bend, um, visiting my family after tour of California in 2015, I think. And, um, yeah, just coincidentally, we, we met at a bar and stayed in touch and yeah, we, uh, I've always wanted like some property and like land to, you know, have a garden and some animals and, um, kind of a rural lifestyle, um, like kind of like a homesteading lifestyle. And that is very, um, I would say common and very doable here in Vermont. Cause you know, we do get a lot of rain and you know, the soil is, is ideal for growing stuff. Um, so yeah, I, once I came out to visit her in 2016, I came out to visit in July and we pretty much started looking for, for houses right away. Um, and yeah, it's, it's a fantastic place to live. What are the, what are the winners like? Long. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, that was, I guess, one of the other things, you know, last winter was the first winter that I spent, you know, a full, full winter season here, uh-huh. but probably not that much, you know, not too different to the winters in Michigan. Well, you know, that's kind of what I was getting at. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and, and I, I love like winter, winter, like when it's snowy and it's wintry and cold, like I love that, you know, stoking the fire and, you know, splitting wood. What I think the hardest seasons that people don't account for, like these transition seasons, yes. you know, like late October, November, when like there's no snow, it's too cold to do anything. It's muddy, like it's stick yep. season. Um, that's bad. But then I guess the spring is, probably the hardest season. Cause it's just like, it's just filthy, you know, it's, it's gray oh, yeah. and the days are still short. And it's like, you can't, you know, in the winter I can ride my fat bike or I can go skiing or snowshoeing, but come like that springtime, it's like too dirty to ride. You know, if the roads haven't, you know, they still have snow on them. Like you're just kind of stuck and like, you know, you can ride inside, but you know, 
comes a point where you're just like, I just want to ride outside again. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's a solid, I don't, yeah, it's, it's more than six months of the year, like yeah, cold. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, summer times are amazing. Like this time of year when it's, you know, 75, 80 degrees and just perfect. You forget mm-hmm. about all that. I, I feel like there are a lot of similarities between Vermont and Michigan. Um, kind of in that same sense of it's, it's North, it's, there's a lot of winter. There's not a not, not a ton of summer. Um, those those transition periods. Yeah, exactly. Um, I think like our gravel scene is pretty similar. I mean, our we have a majority of gravel roads versus paved roads, um, and uh, and also, I mean, we're we're both basically Canada, right? I mean, like <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, we were listening to um, my wife. I did a ride up north to the Canadian border yesterday. And like the whole way home, we were just listening to, to French Canadian radio. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think we're, we're not quite French Canadian. I mean, we're, we're a lot closer to um, Toronto and, and such. But uh, but yeah, absolutely. Um, OK, so I do want to let's let's now talk about your transition then um, from procession, uh, professional cycling, professional um world tour cycling into your role now and i know that it it, as you were talking i mean it's it's kind of within that transition it is transitioning at the same time um it it includes your podcast which is fantastic and then also um uh gravel cycling which hasn't even happened (laughs) yeah um and i just i i guess uh there is a is a trend, and maybe trend isn't the the correct word. An opportunity maybe is 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 a better word. Um, that um, a, a few uh, people like you, like uh, uh, former pros, are are kind of dipping their toe into the gravel scene. And I I'm wondering what kind of opportunity you saw there, and what you you thought could be gained from being a part of the the national gravel scene. Yeah. Well, and I, I guess, you know, my situation very much differs from, you know, if we look at, you know, other pros who have moved to gravel, you know, Ted King or, you know, Pete Stetner this mm-hmm. year, um, even Colin Strickland, you know, those riders, um, you know, I'm just mentioning them cause they've kind of, you know, transitioned from professional road to, to gravel. Um, you know, they, this is still very, the gravel racing and like their sponsorships and, you know, performance those are still very much their livelihood you know that's their job you know sure let's, I mean, let's take pete stetna for example you know we have the most kind of similar or similarities um you know this is still a full-time job from he has you know he's been able to you know kind of get rid of the team structure and pick up individual sponsors and then you know based off you know the sponsorship value or whatever he's able to you know make a job out of this um for myself it's very different in the sense that you know i starting in January, you know, actually came on as a full-time employee at Wahoo. Um, you know, we can get into my job kind of description um, in a second, but yeah, so I, you know, my, with kind of the caveat that, you know, I'm an employee of Wahoo, but I'm also allowed the ability to participate in these events and, you know, I'll be at these events anyways, cause I'm part of the marketing team and, you know, we have an expo or a booth there. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm already there. So I might as well, I might as well race and there's no expectation on me, necessarily having to win all these races um of course i would you know like to be competitive just because i you know, like to test myself and push myself but it's not necessarily 
you know, my job isn't to, it's no longer to, you know, win bike races um, outside of just, you know, personally wanting to be competitive. It's not, it's not, I'm not a paid professional athlete anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, do you uh, find a bit of freedom in that? In terms um, of um, maybe not in, and I mean, you have your day-to-day job, but then when you um, show up to the line, is it, does that help or? Yeah, I have, I have a whole laundry list of excuses now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I mean, so I, I, so with Wahoo, just to kind of elaborate on that a bit, so I've, I've kind of taken on the role of like athlete liaison, um, you know, so there are countless, you know, gravel cyclists, you know, road cyclists, triathletes, you know, professional road teams that we, we partner with or sponsor. Um, so a lot of those athletes I know, I guess in the gravel scene fairly well. So within Wahoo, there's like this Wahoo frontiers campaign mm-hmm. kind of, and that was like, you know, if you saw the video that they launched about myself and was that January and then Pete in February. Those um, are, those are fantastic by the way. Yeah. Those, yeah. Those are so well done. Yeah. And, yeah, and, and we were, you know, told we were a great story. To, I really, I really liked it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you. Yeah. We're trying to, you know, the initial goal was to kind of document all the, the frontiers athletes. So it's, you know, myself, Pete, Colin Strickland, Amity Rockwell, Heather Jackson and Sarah Sturm. Um, you know, so we're not, we're not teammates by any, you know, by mm-hmm. any means, but we are kind of brought together through, through Wahoo. Um, you know, so we had anticipated on kind of documenting all their stories throughout the year at different races and just kind of their, you know, who they are off the bike, but also like, what is their frontier? What, you know, what lays ahead of them? Because a lot of these people, they are in a very transitional phase of, of their life. You know, myself and Pete coming from road to gravel, you know, Colin, like, going last year from being a, you know, competitive gravel racer to winning DK, right. same with Amity. And then you look at, you know, Heather Jackson, who, you know, was U.S.'s best, you know, Ironman triathlete, you know, now, you know, dipping her toes into gravel, you know, what does the future for her look like when she decides to no longer race triathlon? Um, yeah. So I know, like, I know those athletes fairly well. I communicate with them just as part of my, my daily job. But um, it was this spring, I think, before even Old Man Winter. Um, actually, the one gravel race I did. I, yeah. <laughs> but um, it was, yeah. That's, it like that's all not these, a gravel race. I mean, come no, on. it was, yeah. Even At least not this year. And, no. It, um, but I was talking to Stetton, and I was like, oh, man, you're training so much. He's like, yeah, but Ian, you got to be training too. This is your job. And I was like, no, this is no longer my job. <laughs> like, I have a job. This is like my free time if I can get out and, you know, sneak in a lunch ride. And, you know, Wahoo's incredibly flexible with you know being a being a you know a brand in the endurance space there's mm-hmm. not you know no one's going to tell you you can't go for a, a lunch ride you know they're very supportive of, of their employees staying active and healthy from the beginning were you going to work remote or is that something because of covid you're working remote i'm just assuming you you're working remote because i don't i don't know where Where's Wahoo based? They are based down in Atlanta, Georgia. So yeah, I was always going to yeah. be, I was always going to be remote. <laughs> okay. um, you know, I did go down to Atlanta a couple times um, in the fall, I guess early winter, and then again this spring before, before COVID. Um, but yeah, like so, you know, the few days prior to Old Man Winter, I was in Atlanta for some global sales meetings for like four days, and I was like, this is way harder than a training camp. You know, sitting at a desk listening to presentations from the marketing to global marketing team for you know, eight hours a day and then going to a, you know, a company dinner. I was like, Oh my gosh, this is exhausting. <laughs> um, so like I said, it, it's, it's been a transition in, in many ways, but it's, uh, you know, it, it, I'm incredibly fortunate to, you know, have a, an awesome job at Wahoo and still, still be able to ride my bike and, you know, feel supported in, in riding and, you know, at some point racing. Sure. 
Um, so I, I did catch your latest podcast and, and you were talking with a couple, uh, bike packers. Yes. And you need to remind me of their names. Yes. It was Joe Cruz and Karen Young. And I, I I thought you guys had a really incredible conversation about like the makeup of an athlete and, and what drives you and what, um, we've had similar conversations on this podcast about, um, adventure versus competition. And you, you have lots of experience in competition, um, years of experience in competition. I mean, at the highest, highest level. And I just, I, I wonder your take on where you see adventure and competition and how, how they differ or do they work together? Do they dance together a little bit or are they completely a, a, a separate idea? Yeah, I mean, it's still, and that's, that's a really good question. It's something that I still am trying to figure out, you know, my, my mindset, like these, you know, these, well, I don't know if they're pathways or, you know, just like, you know, my instinct is to like push myself, you know? So I, like I said, you know, especially this year, there's no racing, you know, I could just go out and, and ride. I could stop and take a picture. I could take, you know, time at a general store and, you know, go grab an ice cream and just sit in the park and relax. But there's something in me that's still, I think just from so many years of racing of like, all right, you know, I got to go, like, you know, let's mm -hmm. go and grab water. Then like, let's hit it, you know? Yeah. But, um, so that, and that's kind of why I wanted to speak to, to Joe Cruz and, and Karen Young. So they actually stayed at our place. We have an A-frame out back, um, like a cabin out back mm -hmm. and they stayed there. They rode. So Joe Cruz designed the VTXL course that Ted King did. Um, Ted did it in like 20 something hours they did it in four days, you know, so just the contrast was between through, through Vermont, like was. Yep. Yeah. So Ted went from the Canadian border to the Massachusetts border. Okay. They went from the Massachusetts border North to, to Canada. Okay. Um, yeah, I think it's 320 miles. Goodness. Oh, that's um, when he was doing his DIY, like uh, yes. DK XL or whatever. Yep. For, yeah. Yeah. Um, so it passes right by our house. So Joe designed that course and yeah, he, said hey can we stay in the cabin so i you know they stayed here they got here super late and you know I, so i spoke with them obviously when they were here but it just seemed like it's was such a different world for me in the sense that you know they rode they left at you know 8 a.m they arrived at our house at you know after dark like 9 p.m and they rode 70 miles and i was thinking <laughs> oh my gosh like so many times i'm like you know like i'm on a you know now more on a time restraint just because you know, work, I want to get back, I want to spend time sure. with my wife or whatever it may be. And I'm like, wow, they just spent all day riding. Like, then you start to like calculate the speed, but I'm like, oh, they're actually not riding all the time. Like they stop and have lunch somewhere. Or they jump in a, you know, jump in a brook or a river. Um, and so I would love to at some point be able to like slow down and do that. Mm -hmm. And it's still very, like very much something that I'm, I'm kind of learning, you know, like my, like I said, my instinct or the way that I ride is like wanting to just like go somewhere fast or, you know, on my, on my Wahoo head unit, I'm just always looking like, oh, I can I average 20 miles an hour, which, <laughs> you know, speaking to someone like Joe, you know, he has so much experience bikepacking, you know, we kind of dug, dug into that in the, in the, in our chat was that, you know, the bike is such a beautiful thing because you're traveling at this speed that is like, everything is heightened. Even if you're going 20 miles an hour and like, you still smell things, you hear things, you know, all your senses are still active. You know, if you're on a motorcycle, maybe you see more than you'd be in, in a car, but you're still moving too fast to like, you know, absorb everything around you. Um, I guess you get the same thing running, but 
you know, you're not going to ride, you're not going to run 70 miles Mm -hmm. in a day. I mean, some people do, but not day in, day out. And um, yeah, so it's just something that it still fascinates me to, you know, kind of get into this other, like I said, you know, kind of going back to the beginning of our conversation, like feeling like such a rookie at bike riding again, you know, like, Mm -hmm. you know, Hey, let's just go for like a 20 mile ride. And like, you know, a couple of weeks ago, my wife and I left after work um, on a Monday night, rode 20 miles to a campground, camped overnight, and then rode back the next morning before work. And I was like, you know, a total of, you know, it was like 40 miles. And I was like, I wouldn't really call it a bike ride, but it still was, you know, for a lot of people that still is a bike ride. And it was a bike packing, you know, little trip we went on. And, you know, we stopped at a bridge and just ate some peas from the garden. I was like, wow, this is actually really nice. I've never done that. I should, I should slow down more often. Yeah. It, I wonder though, and I'm, I'm wondering how you feel about this, but when I think of adventure, I don't – I'm wondering if, if we're not doing it justice by just saying let's slow down. You know, like like adventure doesn't have to be slower than competition. Yeah, that's maybe, true. Maybe it's just that we uh, make sure and appreciate the competition. Or like – I don't know. Competition is like like you're competing against one another. But, but I think you can uh, – push yourself and still have an adventure and still and maybe push yourself and still enjoy you know and maybe that's the that's the thing is is making sure that you are enjoying what you're doing and not um just competing with what making sure someone else is hurting you know (laughs) yeah no and and you know i very much agree to that that everyone's you know, kind of definition of adventure may be, may be different. You know, for someone like Joe Cruz, that might be, you know, riding across South America over the course of two months. You know, for me, maybe that's, you know, going and doing a, you know, trying to do a hundred miles in, you know, five hours. Mm-hmm. Um, I think maybe adv- adventure is more of like a mindset than, than an actual physical act of, you know, like I said, riding slower or trying to go somewhere. It's like, you know, if you're in this sense of like, you're trying to almost explore, you know, an area, but also explore yourself, like you're adventuring, and you're putting yourself in this vulnerable spot. Maybe that's like the best way to define mm-hmm. it is like you're adventuring when you're vulnerable and that can be, you know, you're bike packing through the woods and you're out in the middle of nowhere and, you know, everything goes wrong, but that could also be, you know, you go for a, a bike ride from your house and you're, you know, getting close to bonking or you're going to make it to the gas station before you, you know, are out of food and water. And it's like, that's still an adventure. And I think, you know, speaking to, to you and your audience, you know, a lot of people are, sense of adventure is probably a lot higher than, you know, a lot of other people, you know, in the world around us, because we're constantly being surrounded by people who are doing, you know, crazy things, especially with social media. Now it's like, everyone's doing something cool all the time, but you know, it's a lot of people, you know, I think it's taking a step out of your comfort zone and pushing yourself, you know, whether that's, you know, distance or days or intensity that really kind of gives you that sense of, of adventure. Something that I've I've uh, been observing in the last few years, uh, in terms of like normal people like myself as a bike rider, and then and then a professional cyclist, um, I, I see it kind of in the gravel scene. I see it kind of happening in the United States, where the divide between the amateur and the professional is coming closer and closer together a little bit and i see like in gravel you can line up on the same line with with a professional um it's kind of like a like an old school marathon you know everyone kind of yeah. goes out together um a word that people use like the 
democratization of of, of cycling, um, and uh, I, I kind of see what what you're doing, what Ted is doing, what Colin is doing, and uh, like Pete. I mean, the, you are all a, a part of that a little bit um, by by kind of. Uh, closing this divide of amateur and professional, and I don't know if you, um, you know, you you have your role at Wahoo. You have you have your professional role. Um, do you see yourself in the cycling realm as having a role, just as a, uh, uh, just to to kind of pro- as a cycling a cyclist like a pro- promoting like healthy and and positive cycling do you see yourself in that in that role or am i just putting that on you <laughs> no definitely and that, and that's one thing that i've i've struggled with um you know moving to vermont is you know i moved here as as a professional athlete and i was on team sky and you know we have a a strong cycling community but it's not there's not a ton of like you know kind of elite road racers maybe you know like, there's not a lot of ton of like cat one racers who you know I moved here and like, Hey, let's ride, like, let's call Ian and ride with him. Mm-hmm. A lot of people were very intimidated to ride with me. Um, even just this last weekend, we rode with, with a group of people, um, you know, they all had like frame bags and they brought pie on the ride and pizza in their pocket and, you know, <laughs> pocket so pizza. They, yeah. So we were, we were connected to them through some other friends and they're like, Hey, we're going to go up to, to Peachum and ride with, with Ian and Gretchen. And we got to talking on the ride and they're like, Oh, we were so worried like about coming up here that you guys were just going to like, leave us behind and, you know, not know, we're not going to know where to go. You're not going to talk to us. And so I think maybe my role would be like to realize that, you know, I just want to, I just want to fit in. I just want to be at these events and just riding with people. And, you know, maybe there's events when I'm, you know, riding at the front and trying to compete for the win, but I was at, um, what was it? Old, not, not old man winter. Um, that was, yeah, we talked about that. Um, the gravel mob last year in Southern California, I went out with, with Canyon and, and Wahoo, um, and, you know, so it's, it's a race, but it's also a ride and, you know, it's a gravel event. And I, you know, went hard for the first 20 minutes and I flatted and I was like, awesome. Like, I don't have to ride hard anymore. So I spent the next, <laughs> you know, four hours just, just riding with people. And that's when I first met Amity and, um, spoke with so many other people. I met a guy who went to college with my dad I'm like, this is so cool. You know, and, you know, I was still in a, in a pro kit, but I didn't feel like a pro athlete. You know, I, I just, I guess my message to people would be like, don't be afraid to approach you know, people at, you know, coming from a higher level of riding. Cause I think that's one of the coolest things about, about bikes is it kind of strips away everything else about you. Everyone's like vulnerable and like exposed when they're on a bike. Um, so yeah, maybe my, maybe my place is to just be, yeah, just a, a guy out there who wants to chat with people. Cause I love, I love having conversations and as you probably know like the best conversations you oftentimes have or are on a bike ride when you're, you know, three or four hours in. Do you think there's, it, I I feel like there's an opportunity right now, uh, not so much like gravel scene, but we find like post COVID how um, how huge recreational cycling is becoming, and and then you you also spoke a little earlier about um, the stress that it that there is as a professional cyclist. And, um, I, I don't know. I feel like there, there still is a little bit of a, a divide or a, um, a difference between this boom that we're seeing now post COVID or in COVID, I guess, of, um, 
of recreational cycling and uh, the business of cycling is, is, I think it was like the biggest month or the biggest week in a month. I, I don't know. But, um, but then also like professionals still need to, to, to scrap and to, and to, and to grind. And I don't, I don't know where, where those two things meet. And I don't even know if this is like, I don't know if there's an answer to this, but. Yeah. Well, I mean, I would say that, you know, and I saw this, you know, even just in the, the seven years that I was racing at the world tour is the, in many ways, like the divide is almost becoming greater. You know, when I first went to the, you know, to team sky in 2013, um, you know, there were some older pros in the team, you know, Bernie Eisel and some, you know, Gabriel Rash, like these, these riders who had been in the world tour a long time. And, you know, they kind of grew up in this era of professional road cycling where you just, I mean, you did, you trained hard, but you rode your bike and there was like very much a community feel to, it. you know, you do coffee stops and you, you know, maybe you're doing six hours, but it's, you know, you're riding in a group and you know everyone does their intervals by themselves, but you know, you regroup at the top of a climb and, you know, ride together. And I see the younger generation now and, you know, because of power meters and kind of the increased knowledge of training and physiology, sure, people have become very kind of individual athletes, you know, so they, you know, living in Nice, you know, I kind of was like straddling these two generations where, you know, I would ride with the older guys, you know, Richie Port or, you know, Froome or Garrett Thomas and like, we're like Jill Bear, like we would ride together the whole time. We'd stop, do a coffee shop, you know, coffee shop stop, mm-hmm. um, you know, get a sandwich or something. And it was, you know, we all did the work we needed, but we still had, you know, specific training to do. And I see the younger generation and you'll invite them like, Hey, we're doing this ride. And, you know, all these, you know, big athletes are going to be there. And they'll be like, Oh no, sorry, I can't come. I have my own, my own training mm-hmm. to do. And it's like, wait, what? Like if you're, you know, if you're a, if you're a basketball player and like, Hey, like, you know, LeBron James just invited us to go shoot hoops. You're gonna say, Oh no, I'm going to go practice, you know, free throws by myself. Like that just doesn't, that doesn't happen. But because of the, the, you know, kind of the culture of cycling now, you know, you see all these young riders who are performing really well because they're focused on just the performance side. So I think finding that balance as a pro athlete is becoming more difficult. And maybe that's part of the reason why you see the divide between kind of, but you, you know, say, I guess, amateur gravel riders and professional becoming closer because there are a lot of people that really are working hard now and, and training hard, you know, to get ready for these events. Um, do you think uh, if the, if you were going through the same thing in the 90s, um, would you be racing mountain bikes? Oh, that's a good question. Possibly. Really? <laughs> yeah, man. I was I was only born in '91, so I don't know what the whole mountain bike culture was like. But I, you know, I think a lot of you know people, kind of in my situation, you know, that we still love riding our bikes and and gravel racing and riding is still very much a way for us to continue our passion without all the stress of of being a you know European professional cyclist. Um, but would I be racing mountain bikes? I mean, probably. I'd definitely be riding mountain bikes. I don't. I mean, unfortunately, I don't even have a mountain bike at the moment, but um, and we live close to the I guess, to I, guess, kingdom I, trails, guess I, but. I asked the question because it seems like uh, gravel cycling is the oppor- like the the opportunity now. Um, but, you know, uh, 20 years ago, that wasn't the opportunity. Like maybe the opportunity was, was racing mountain bikes. So um, post-world tour, would you um, would you just take what the opportunity is so you can ride your bike? Yeah. I mean, probably. I mean, yeah. I think that, you know, I mean, you, you see, you've seen other athletes transition to, to triathlon, you know, um, 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess Cam Worf did that. Now he's back racing, but you know, T- Andrew Talansky did the same thing. He went from world tour to triathlon because I think there's something, you know, it, like I said, you know, personally, it's like, it takes a while to like kind of get rid of that, you know, that adrenaline junkie, you know, kind of buzz of, of heart of training hard and coming back like completely, you know, thrashed and like, Oh man, like the last hour of the ride, you're just thinking like, Oh, what's in the refrigerator. Like that's <laughs> addicting. You know, we all, we all love that. We all know what that feels like. And, um, yeah, so I'd, I would definitely, whether, you know, whether it would have been mountain biking or triathlon or something, I probably would have definitely dabbled in, in some type of, of endurance sports that, you know, my transition away from road cycling would have kind of catered towards. I'm, I'm a little interested in, in your uh, experience now as, as a podcaster and as having these great conversations that I've been listening to with um, – with all sorts of different athletes. Um, how have you enjoyed that as a, as maybe a, a kind of a, a different um, arena of your, of your life and as of, of your, um, of your career, I guess. Yeah. I mean, it's been, you know, I'm still very much learning. Um, yeah. And, and it really depends on, you know, who I'm speaking with. There's been, there are athletes and, you know, people that maybe I don't expect to, you know, have a, you know, easy conversation with, you know, I, I would, I guess, first off, I would prefer to have all these conversations in person oh, uh, due to COVID. 100%, we're not, 100%. Yeah. We're not doing any of them in person. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, I spoke to Sarah Sturm. I'd never, never spoken to her before and spoke to her. This must've been back in March or something. Mm-hmm. And we spoke for an hour without really, any sort of, you know, I hadn't really, you know, I, I knew who she was and kind of did some research, but, you know, the conversation just evolved and we just wound up speaking for an hour and I was like, oh, wow, like that was an awesome conversation. And same with, I did one with um, Yuri Oswald back mm-hmm. in maybe April or May and same thing. Like we just, we just hit it off and it was just an awesome conversation. So I really enjoy those. And they're, you know, the beauty of not doing a podcast live and you know, not in person is that, you know, you can edit and, and cut things if, if it doesn't work. hundred um, <laughs> percent. Yeah. But it's, um, you know, it's something I'm still very much learning and you're know, trying to, you know, make sure that a conversation is, is engaging. And like you said, I mean, it's, I guess, similar to your podcast, I'm speaking to athletes, you know, I know professional road cycling, you know, extremely well you know, I've had triathletes on and, you know, mountain bikers and, you know, people from different arenas, um, you know, race promoters. So it's really, you know, kind of challenged me to like, you know, try to learn something before I, before I speak to these, you know, people, because I don't, I don't always know what I'm talking about. You know, I'm, a couple episodes ago, I thought that Alex Stita was American and it turns out he's Canadian. I was like, oh, that's such a, I, I left it in the <laughs> podcast just to show my ignorance. But it was, um, yeah, I think, you know, I think, I don't mind being like vulnerable and like showing that I, I don't know everything and I make mistakes just like everyone. I guess um, going back to the amateur to the professional, um, I think things like that are very important. Um, the way that you can put out a weekly podcast and, and to speak to different athletes, different professionals or different people in the profession. Um, and then people like myself can consume that and listen to it and kind of feel a part of it. Um, so whether you, uh, Ian are lining up and winning a gravel race or whether you are, um, communicating to us through a podcast or through a YouTube video or through whatever, um, 
I think that is what you're giving to the cycling culture is just um, a way for, um, I don't know, the, the, the weekend warrior to, to become motivated and inspired to do more with their, their cycling and, and their life. Yeah, you know, I mean, that's the thing that I've really learned over the last you know few months is like an appreciation for these athletes that are that do have a full time job and have kids. You know, my wife and I, we have chickens and we're in the process of getting a puppy. But to see these athletes who, you know, have a full time job, they have you know multiple kids and they're still, you know, kicking butt at these races. You know, there's a guy up here and um, he lives over in New Hampshire, actually, but I ride with him once in a while named Mike Barton. And he's got to be in his mid 40s. He has twin daughters that are like 11 and i think he was like 12th at dk last year i'm like Holy oh cow. my god like what is so inspiring that he is able to do that you know that he and like I, you know, every time i ride with him he's just crushing it he just like smashes himself and it's just like wow like you know i thought you know it's impressive that you know colin won but like that's his full-time job is just training this guy sure. has so many other things going on and so i think you know there's and that's one thing that you know is so interesting about the you know podcasting is you know i've spoken to a lot of kind of big name athletes but it's almost the stories of people like him that inspire me and kind of intrigue me more. I'm like, how do you do this? You know, cause I'm very much learning how to like balance training and, and work and, you know, life responsibilities. And I see someone like him, I'm like, you know, he's doing it. And like, that is so cool for me to see. And I think that's one of the awesome things with, with gravel racing and kind of, you know, kind of racing in the U S at the moment is, you know, you have so many people like that who are able to like find this balance in life and still, you know, just be, you know, awesome at everything they're doing. And that's, you know, for me, that's almost more, you know, I admire someone like that almost more so than the pro athletes winning. Cause I'm like, they are a complete human doing everything. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's amazing. I got a, a couple more things before we, before we wrap up. Um, again, thank you so much. This was, this has been great. Um, you mentioned you haven't been to Michigan and uh, I feel like we might need to remedy that pretty soon. But there are some fantastic races in Michigan. And I just want to um, – this is not a question. This is just me promoting Michigan. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, um, I mean, I'm, I'm sure uh, mountain biking, you've heard of Iceman, of course. I have, yes. So, um, goodness, who, who won it last year? I'm, Alexi Vermeulen. Alexi, yes. He's yeah. messaged me a couple of times to come out and do it. Yeah. yeah you, ha- you have to. I mean, it's just it, – it, listen – this year is just a probably not, but um, it, the event is just something else, and yeah. uh, um, so just to experience it, and uh, it, I think you would really dig it. And I feel like you're, you would feel right at home. I feel like Vermont and Michigan, that it, you just feel at home. I I, I think, but um, then there is a an early spring gravel race. But um, but now it's moved because of COVID. But it's usually in April. Um, is the uh, the Barry Roubaix, and that I is, have heard of that. That is an incredible gravel race, and I think if you were going to, in my opinion, if you're going to experience um, any of the races in Michigan, Barry Roubaix, Iceman would be would be a couple of them. There's some in the UP that. Uh, Margie Gesick is one that people talk about a lot, and um, but anyways, I, I I encourage you to maybe in the future come out to Michigan and check out some of these some of these races. 
Yeah, no, I would love to. And that's, and that's one thing I guess that I've realized this year is, you know, my, my calendar and schedule for this year was definitely targeting, you know, kind of the, the very well-known American, you know, gravel races, you mm-hmm. know, Belgian waffle and dirty Kanza and, you know, SBT. Um, but the more I kind of realized like there's so many events and I would love, you know, to kind of go to, I mean, I know Barry Roubaix is a huge event. Iceman's a huge event, mm-hmm. but like, you know, to go to some of these smaller events, you know, with 150 people, like that's, you know, because it's such a different experience than going to something like DK where it's, you know, it's, uh, yeah, they're just big, big events. And yeah, I know I did just say DK. I'm still not sure what to reference when it comes to that event. Uh, I mean, yeah, we've talked about the same thing. I mean, you said DK, so that's, I guess, I don't know. Um, they haven't really dealt with that, I guess, but <laughs> no, that, that 200 mile race in Kansas, that 200 mile race <laughs> in Kansas, you know, honestly, like it, it, at least locally, I'm seeing that the the smaller grassroots races can figure out a way to deal with some of the COVID protocol more than like these giant races. And so there yeah. are a, f- a couple races happening um, because they are 100 people or 200 people and they can go in waves and they can figure that out. But when you're talking about like Barry Roubaix is like 5,000 people and yeah. uh, um, Iceman is probably, you know, like – that's like at least you know thousands of people that are are meeting and that's a that's a little more difficult to figure out so i i this might be um the next few months just kind of the 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 time for the grassroots race to uh and i mean race kind of in quotes i guess um but at least some of these events um that's probably uh, that's all to be seen you know we we're not really sure about that the most important thing, and we can kind of close with this, is you mentioned um, if you're training and you're and you're kind of you're you're right at the end and you're thinking about what's in the fridge. What is in the fridge for you post hard oh, training ride? It depends what day of the week it is. I um, so I my brother was out here in in April and we built like this log cabin lean to and. Needless to say, it took a lot of beer to, to finish that thing. So once he, I think a lot of people maybe drank more during the early stages of lockdown. So once he left, I decided that I was going to not drink outside of the weekends. So if it's like a Friday, Saturday, or Sunday, I'm looking forward to a good beer when I get home, first thing. Okay. Um, if I get home on a weekday, ooh, I mean, if there's leftovers, but I have a real, um, a real craving for cheerios with yogurt maple syrup and honey sounds kind of <laughs> yeah wait no milk at all just just the, yogurt the yogurt wait, does say, yeah yeah, yeah the yogurt said, does the job yeah, not <laughs> sorry not honey yeah so yogurt cheerios um peanut butter maple syrup okay. strange but it's so easy it's delicious and i can yeah eat far too many bowls of that <laughs> when i get home from a ride um going back to the beer what's your what what beer are you grabbing on the on the weekend oh um you know when i first moved to vermont i was drinking a lot of double ipas mm-hmm. which are delicious but i quickly realized that you can't drink too many <laughs> no but you wake up in the morning you just have this like cotton mouth you're like oh my gosh i feel terrible um so there's a beer oh my favorite beer at the moment there's a an ipa from a brewery i think it's upper pass um i think it's called drops um it's a beer first drop drop, my wife just said it first um first drop and it's like a it's like six percent you can actually drink a few of them and they're they're pretty 
pretty darn good and refreshing after a long hard ride. Perfect. I guess I would also add maple if I if I'm on a bike ride and I can finish it like a maple creamy stand. That's I guess kind of the ultimate. That's like your thing, right? The, the the maple creamies. Yeah, I rode 85 miles to get one on on Sunday. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it was uh, it's worth it. And I think it's you know probably similar to where you're at in Michigan. It's like things are so seasonal here. You know, you only can get them for a couple of months in the summer, and then they all close up. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's got to get them while I can. Well, you you have to explain to us what what it is. Um, exactly what 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 a maple creamy is yeah well it sounds so much more interesting than it is so it's just i mean it's maple well it's a soft serve ice cream but rather than you know most often you get one that's you know vanilla or chocolate or a twist um so it's just sweetened with maple syrup instead of you know vanilla and sugar or chocolate and sugar and um yeah the word creamy is i don't know the full origins of it but it's somehow very unique to Vermont. Like if I cross the border and go to New Hampshire, it's just called soft serve. But in the state of Vermont, it's it's, a creamy. it's creamy. Yeah. Um, yeah. Spelled C R E E M E E, which is you know okay. kind of <laughs> a lot of ease in there. Um, but yeah, I mean, and there's some fantastic places. It's I mean also cool to you know I guess adventure and ride to new to new creamy stands. And I would always recommend getting in a waffle cone. You get way more bang for your buck. And if they have maple sugar, you know, like maple candy, they crush and sprinkle on the top, then all the better. Awesome. I have to uh, visit Vermont just for a maple creamy. Anytime. <laughs> Thank you so much. This is this is great. I appreciate the the hour you gave us and um, chatting about all this stuff. This is this is great. Thank you so much. Yeah. No. Thank you. The Dirty Chain Podcast is a Michigan Midpack Media production in partnership with KOM Cycling, the source for your bike accessories and necessities. Connect with us on Instagram and Facebook at Dirty Chain Podcast, email dirtychainpodcast at gmail.com, or call our hotline at 616-522-2641. If you are enjoying our podcast, please leave us a rating and review on whatever platform you use to listen. Audio editing and original music by Trevor Gibney. And he's also been handling the social media, graphic design, (laughs) and currently, bad decisions. (laughs) Thank you to Ian Boswell for taking the time and being on our podcast. And as always, keep your chain clean. But get your chain dirty. We will see you in the mid-pack.